Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are deep into the study of the book of 2 Timothy, and more importantly, the discussion and understanding of apostasy. Our Christian world has given itself to apostasy, and you will quickly understand the meaning of the word apostasy as you listen to class teacher Doug Brady in these lessons. Today we begin to dig deeply into the scriptures and understand the satanic work to take us away from God and the life he has for us. This study will take several more lessons to complete, but today we will be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 2 and 4. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We invite you to join us if you are in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium, ready to begin. Due to a mistake, I will read the notes for the first several minutes of this lesson, and then Doug will take over. Paul is now issuing a warning to his readers of the coming apostasy. And this insight, Paul with Timothy and with us, is never more urgent than now. Now, as we reiter our exegetical study of 2 Timothy, we will find that the subject of apostasy will be discussed at length from chapter 3, verse 1, until chapter 4, verse 8. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 9. We will describe the apostasy that is coming, and 2 Timothy 3.10-4.8 will provide us with the antidote to the coming apostasy. In the last days, 2 Timothy 3.1, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 2-5 says, For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Verses 2 through 5 are all one sentence, and they make up a grammatical setting referred to as intercalation. We decided to consider the outer layers of this intercalation first, and then we will get to the filling. The outer layers of this apostasy will be characterized by misplaced affections, and Paul will now describe the attributes of those misplaced affections. Number one, 
lovers of self. Psychological term is narcissism. Religious repercussions, the widespread growth of humanistic infiltration of the church. The results, when God is either removed from the hearts of men and women, or their God consciousness is seared or cauterized, humanism takes over. And as a result, ethics, morality, justice, and virtue all become situational. See Psalm 14, verse 1, and Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And now, here's our teacher, Doug Brady. In a partnership marriage, you have two leaders and no followers until you have children. They're the followers. Now, is that the way the Scripture teaches marriage to be? No. But that's the way. And if you get to a point in that marriage where the partners, the two leaders, can't agree, well, then it's very simple. You just dissolve the partnership. And that's just like a a business partnership would dissolve. The second thing that we're beginning to see, it's coming out of the seminaries, it's in so many churches, and that is female pastors and preachers. Female pastors and preachers. Is that scriptural? No, of course not. Now, you know, as I was thinking about this, and we need to think about this and make sure we understand it. You look at that to start with, and it tends to be your first reaction. You know who's responsible for that? Women. They're the ones who want to have a partnership. They're the ones who want to preach and, and teach and those kind of things. But you know what? That's not true. Men are the problem. Men will not be godly men. And so they leave it open for this kind of thing to happen. And that's wrong. And it's the men who have let the church down in that regard. Number three, homosexual relationships and marriages in the church. That is becoming something that, if you're against that, how loving can you, unloving can you be? As loving as God is, but he hates homosexuality. And we need to understand that. Next, you see homosexual participation in church leadership. And it's coming on. You see churches in which members are in open, adulterous relationships. And you see the cause of all this is that religious experience, religious experience takes precedent over biblical truth. Those are six characteristics I'm seeing that are affecting the church as a result of this apostate lovers of self. Now, number two, we, still, we studied before, is lovers of money. Lovers of money. You could call that religious experience materialism. And it results is that the church will even change its thinking and its view of doctrine based on materialism. Now, wait a second. The church is changing with their thinking because of materialism? Oh, yes. Let me give you some examples. I was a long time ago a member of the New Deacons Committee in this church, and we would be those who would recommend someone who should be deacon. I have heard said, look how well they're doing financially. Obviously, God is blessing them 
Therefore, we need them in a position of leadership in our church. You know, materialism is attacking the church. Satan used that. Sometimes churches tend to say financial success is equal to spiritual success because it evidences the spiritual success of our church. If you were to go to Saddleback Church and that was your view, then yeah, it, it's clearly proved. My opinion, Saddleback Church is not a successful church. Uh, you look at who its leader was, Rick Warren, and you know the heresy that he believes in the spouses. You know, that's a church made to make unbelievers comfortable. Church was never designed. <laughs> Can you imagine sitting around the upper room table and Thomas was to ask Jesus, Jesus, do you think as we're establishing this church, we ought to try and make it comfortable for unbelievers? Can you imagine? Thomas, how long have you been with me? And number three, sometimes they're allowing debt to direct the path of the church or the teachings in the church. There are pastors in this nation who will tell you, we can't talk about blood or hell or, you know, attack these sins that we've been talking about. Why? Because people will stop coming, and if they stop coming, we won't be able to pay our debt. Apostasy in the church starts with the love of money. And we put ourselves in a position where the love of money can cause us all kinds of problems. Which brings us to the bottom level of this intercalation, and that is misplaced affections, lovers of pleasure. Lovers of pleasure. What is Paul talking about? The religious response of lovers of pleasures is hedonism. And hedonism is considered the pursuit of pleasure, that is, sensual self-indulgence. It is a life focused on fulfilling one's desires. Now you think about that. Isn't that the direct antithesis of what Christianity is supposed to be? It's supposed to be a life aimed at fulfilling the desires of our master, not ourself. But that's what this lovers of pleasure. And we need to come to understand something about sin. There, there are some churches that you could go to where you would never hear what I'm fixing to say. And that is, sin is fun. Sin is exciting and exhilarating. Now, Satan would want the statement to end right there. Sin for a very short window, is fun, exhilarating, and exciting. Consequences. And Don, those consequences are usually divided into two parts. There are first coming internal consequences that are happening inside you. And then second, there are external consequences that occur. And, and I want you to see this because any religious leader who tells you the opposite, that sin is not, you should seriously doubt their credibility or their extent of biblical knowledge. But that's not a church you should be going to. Because how can that guy lead you? But the fun and excitement of sin clearly is short-lived. The first night, I imagine, was fun and exciting. And David said to himself, this is great. This Bathsheba woman is just what I thought she was when I was on top of the roof. But then the rot 
started happening. And it would commence to eat away at his soul. And the fun and the exhilaration evaporated like steam coming out of tea kettle. And then when his sin was publicly exposed, the eternal, the external consequences started to set in. Now, I can tell you, there are some pastors, some teachers, some religious leaders who if they would hear, they would stand up and say, Doug, you're a heretic. Sin's not fun. The Bible never teaches that sin is fun. They never teaches that sin can be exhilarating and pleasurable. And I would say, all right, explain to me how you explain this verse, Hebrews 11, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That's what the Bible teaches. We need to be aware of that. You have to know your enemy. The next thing we need to know is that sin is addictive. Addictive. More sin is always needed to cover up the negative consequences of past sin. And that sin pushes the man or woman who believes in God farther away from their creator. This passage I'm going to read you, it says exactly that. Every time I read it, I start to have a pain in my heart because I think it perfectly describes our nation. It's found in John chapter 3, starting in verse 19. This is the judgment. That's a funny way to start. This is the judgment, but yes, this is God's judgment. That the light, that is Jesus, has come into the world... And men love darkness rather than the light. In other words, they became lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure as opposed to lovers of God. And men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. Now let's look for just a second. The effects of sin on the believer. Sin from the believer has an erosive effect on the conscience so that sinning becomes easier for the sinner over time. Sensitivity toward the pain of others that our sin causes diminishes. Awareness of guilt before God no longer feels like an issue. And the more you sin, the easier sin becomes. The more you sin, the easier. Let's go back and see the lie in that, or how, how that worked in David's life. In Psalm 32, 3 and 4, he says, first we're looking at internal. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was drained away from us with the fever heat of summer. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What is he saying there? My guilt haunts me, is what he's saying. And finally, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Why is he saying restore to me the joy of my salvation? Because he had lost it. I want you to remember this phrase, your hand was heavy upon me. We're going to talk about that now again, and we're going to talk about it at the end. And I want you to remember that. 
from Psalm 32, 4. What does that mean? Your hand was heavy on me or upon me. Does God really do that? Does he place his hand heavily upon somebody? Well, he does that to believers and unbelievers. Let me give you an example of unbelievers first. Do you remember when Saul lost the ark to the uh, Philistines? The first group that got it was the Ashdodites. All right, let me, hopefully I can read it better when I, I mean, say it better when I read it. In 1 Samuel 5, 6, Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Now, on a believer, Job, his hand is heavy despite my groaning. I'm pleading with him not to do it, but it's still heavy on me, Job is saying. I want us to look at the list I could come up with, and I'm not saying this is a complete list. There could be more, but these were the ones that God showed me this week, the effects of sin on the believer. Now, there's a reason why I want this list, and I'm emphasizing it, and that's for this reason. This is a list you might need to check from time to time. Is any of this applying to me? Then God, what is the sin that is causing this so that I can get it out of my life? When you're counseling somebody who's a believer, you ought to talk to them about these things. Do you ever? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's look at the first one. The first one is sin quenches the Holy Spirit's ministry through you. Sin quenches the Holy Spirit's ministry. Number two is Bible study becomes unfruitful. Why does it become unfruitful? Does the Bible change? No. But the effect of the Holy Spirit in your life changes. Who is really the teacher of the Bible? The Holy Spirit, the guy who wrote it. And number three, it robs us of our joy. Number four, it takes away the excitement of being God's children. We should be excited being children of God. And number five, it robs us of his peace. Number six, it hinders our fellowship with him. Number seven, it brings about a loss of confidence in our prayer life. And finally, it causes us to become fearful. What am I saying now? This list is a valuable checklist for you to keep and to put away somewhere where you can get it when you need it. What happens if, if you're saying, you know, I'm not at peace at all. In fact, I'm fearful. Oh, could that be caused by sin in my life? What if there's no joy? Or when I'm studying the Bible, I'm not getting anything. It's like nothing's happening. Or, you know, gee, my prayers just don't seem to do anything. Now, in the same way, if you're counseling another believer, well, let me ask you some questions. Do you find yourself ever being fearful? Does it hinder your fellowship with God? Do you feel that that's hindered at all? Now, it's interesting. When I was first a lawyer, uh, you know, I was taking any case I could get. And I took some personal injury cases. And I think it's called a physician's desk reference. And the big red book when I bought it. And you can open it up and you look up a disease and it'll tell you the symptoms. Now, as a lawyer, you would think, okay, if they've got all those symptoms, they got that disease. But that's not the way it works. You could have six symptoms left from there, and they say, well, if you have three or four of these, then you've got this. 
All right? You don't have to have all of the symptoms. You just have to have a significant number. It's the same thing true here. You may not have all of those symptoms, but if you have a significant number, you know sin is causing this. It's having an erosive effect on your soul. That's why this list, I think, could be important for us to hold on to and to use and as, as we go through here. Now, let's move to the final one so I don't run out of time. Rather than lovers of God. That's the final part of this statement of thing. Now, there are some who put all of those together. This really lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's one thing, one idea. I seriously disagree. Let me tell you why I disagree. If you look at those Greek words, rather, the, translated rather than, they are conjunctive in nature. But the type of conjunction they are is disjunctive. Like, but and and are both conjunctions, but and is really of a conjunctive nature, putting two things together, where but is disjunctive, separating two things, or contrasting two things. Here, rather than is a contrast of lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And really, because we understand this as an intercalation, we lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that's what we need to see. This is a disjunction. They used to love God, and now they don't. They're loving other things. Now, if you were to ask them, they may, oh, yes, I love God. It's like the guy who says, well, I love my wife. Do you have a mistress that you have set up in a hotel over here or an apartment? Well, yeah, but I love my wife. Yeah, that's a lie. And we need to understand that's the way God is viewing this. You see, the misplaced affection should be the real object of our affection. Now, there's a way this works in our life, and I want you to see it, because I want you to be able to see it either in yourself or in someone you're counseling as it's starting. Because, you see, it starts like this. There, there's a, just a little lowered priority given to God than some of these other things. Just a little lower priority. Maybe it's kind of hard to tell sometimes. But now let's look at the second thing. Then God starts to be marginalized a bit compared to our love for self, money, and pleasure. And then thirdly, to be thought of to be not so important or even unreal. Do I really know that God's real? How can I be certain that God's real? You know, nobody else, all these other people don't seem to think you know, whenever you listen to all these other people, what you're listening to is the wrong thing. Finally, betrayal. Betrayal of the one you're supposed to love. Some of you may be thinking, Doug, are you really talking about what I think you're talking about? And I answer to that is yes. And we're going to talk about it. You see, the love of self, money, and pleasure take the place of one's love for their creator. If I want to, yes. That is, in many ways, the progression of persecution. It is the progression of persecution, too. If I wanted to pick an example of these three things being depicted, the love of self, the love of money, and the love of pleasure, you know what, I would, I would pick a movie. And that movie is called, I haven't seen it, 
I want you to know I have not seen this movie because this is one of the most wicked movies I've ever heard of. It's called The Wolf of Wall Street. I went online to try and get some pictures and, uh, to show you, and this is the only one I felt comfortable showing you. Leonardo DiCaprio, or whatever his name is, he's the guy, and he's the star, and it's all about loving self and loving money and loving pleasure. And I am not recommending that anybody see that movie. It is absolutely evil and wicked, but it depicts exactly. Now remember, the people we're talking about in these three things, they used to be lovers of God. These aren't people in the world that we're talking about now in this passage. We're talking about lovers of God. And we need to see it now before we finish from, from this light. You see, God has a name for this. When his people turn to the love of self, the love of money, and the love of pleasure, and away from the love of their God. You know what the name for it is? I do. What? Idolatry. No. Spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. Now you're saying, I don't know about that, Doug. That seems a little strong. Let's talk just a second about physical adultery. Do you know that used to be illegal in our state, in most states of the Union? Illegal. You could be put in, in jail for committing adultery. Of course, in Israel, you could be stoned to death. Then there was a case decided by the Supreme Court, I think in 2003, Lawrence versus the state of Texas. Who do you think was on the right side there? state of Texas was. They were upholding their law of anti-sodomy, that it was illegal to participate in homosexual acts. But in Lawrence versus Texas, it also not only knocked out sodomy, but any illegality of adultery was, was gone. Now, in our nation today, they don't use the word adultery anymore. You know why? That's too harsh. That's too guilt-inducing. That's too blaming. We want to use a nicer word like an affair. I mean, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? An affair. Who would, who would be uh, opposed to using a term like that? It's a lot nicer. God does not use the term affair. So now I want us to take a few minutes and consider how God refers to this progression away from him, which ends in betrayal. See God's perspective. And maybe the best place to start is in the Ten Commandments. And the one that talks about adultery? No, that's not the one. I think the Tenth Commandment is where we should start. It's found in Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to, the na to your neighbor. I gave you the, the Hebrew word, chamad, there, which is translated uh, covet. English meaning of this word is to want to have something very much, especially that which belongs to someone else. Now, I want you to think about this. We talk about, what was David's great sins? Well, it was adultery and murder. Wasn't covetousness one of David's first sins that he committed on the roof and that warm afternoon as he were surveying the city and he spied out Bathsheba. Yes, it was. He wanted another man's wife. 
And it, the effect of sin, if you follow it through, this man whose wife, who, who Bathsheba belonged to, was one of his good friends, one of his mighty warriors. He had been with him since the very first running away from Saul, had fought beside him. Maybe David had saved Uriah's life. Maybe Uriah had saved David's life. And he ends up murdering that man because of the covetousness that started there on that balcony or that, that uh, rooftop that day. The Old Testament times, it was Israel, God's people, who were found guilty of spiritual adultery. Just so there can be no question about it. And Steve, I don't choose idolatry because I think idolatry is only a part of spiritual adultery. Jeremiah 3.20, surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Isaiah 121, how the faithful city has become a harlot, and she who has, and she who was full of justice and righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Isaiah 57, 8, Behold the door and the doorpost you have set up your sign. Indeed, far removed from me, you have uncovered yourself. You have gone up and made your bed wide, and you have made arrangements for yourself with them. And you have loved their bed, and you have looked on their manhood. Or Ezekiel 6, 9, Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations in which you have, will be carried captive, and how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts that have turned away from me, and by their eyes which pledge the harlot after their idols, and they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all abominations. Or Ezekiel 16, how languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God. While you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot, when you built your shrine in the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square in disdaining money, you were not like a harlot. You were an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Now, I have read as I've studied, they say there is really a misunderstanding of these passages. He's not talking about a spiritual adultery of Israel. Israel was not his wife. You know, the church is the bride of Christ. Not Israel. Well, I would agree with that. Israel is not the bride of Christ. Would I agree that Israel is not the wife of God? No, I wouldn't. And I would ask these guys, when you read Isaiah 54, verse 4, what does it say to you? Fear not, for you will not be put into shame, and do not feel humiliated, for you are not disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your womanhood. You will remember no more. For your husband is your maker. He's talking to Israel here. Whose name is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of all the earth. He's clearly saying, Israel's my wife. Well, they may say, okay, but that's the Old Testament. You know, they call it Old Testament for a reason. It's old. It's one book and one book alone. Do you want them to all write it after Christ is dead? What scripture then would people like Moses and David and Joshua have? They would have had nothing. 
God wrote it over this entire historical period. And he wanted everyone to have at least part of it. We're just fortunate we got all of it. We're lucky. No, lucky's not the right word. Blessed is the right word. But yes, it is in the New Testament just as much. Look at James. Now, James, he's just kind of up front and in your face. And how does he start? You adulteresses. That's the way he starts. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Can we have peace or compromise? Can we have tolerance? Is that talking about tolerance? No. If you have friendship with the world, that's hostility to God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which has been made to dwell in us. So what is James talking about or teaching about spiritual adultery? Believers who choose to be friends with the world are an adulterous people. That's what he's saying. That is strong. But do we see our churches doing that? You know, Rick Warren once said, I am gathering a million-man army. A million-man army of believers. You think, well, that sounds very good. You're going to start a revival across the nation. You're going to be spreading God's good news of his gospel all across our nation. No, no, that's not what we're doing. We're going to try and eliminate hunger, eliminate uh, illiteracy, and eliminate medical needs of people. That's the goal, those three-part goal of his million-man army. I, I listened to him say that. Now, it was in a recording I heard on, on a radio or, or on the Internet, but I listened to him. I recognize Rick Rowan's voice. I have heard it many times. He said that. Gee, do you see what's going on in our churches today? Now, so there can be no question of what this phrase was, the world That means the system of evil under Satan's control. Paul wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, in which he said, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He's talking about Satan who's in control. John said the same thing in 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we have to come to understand, as a final conclusion as to this capostasy, that spiritual adultery is forsaking the love of God and embracing the world's values and desires. The person who commits spiritual adultery, who professes to be a Christian and yet his real love His real love is pleasure of what Satan has to offer. How do we avoid this unfaithful desire? How can we avoid misplaced affections? Because this is strong. If they're telling you that the seduction is easy to spot and to avoid, they're lying to you. Satan is good at this. He's been doing it for thousands of years. You know, you get good after a while at things. You learn what works and what doesn't work. It's interesting. We're talking about misplaced affections. Paul gives us a message in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. He says, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Well, obviously here it's talking about 
not having misplaced affections, but having properly placed affections. What does it mean, though, to set your affections or your mind on things? That's one word, proneo. And it means to direct one's mind to a thing to seek or to strive for. It's imperative, meaning it is a command. This verb emphasizing, emphasizes an ongoing decision. You see, it would be really nice if in relation to sin, we could make the decision one time, I'm not doing that, and that stands forever. But no, we have to make it maybe 10 or 15 times in one day. And it's a consistent decision. We have to be able to say no, no, and no. But what do we begin to see from this concept of misplaced affections in, in uh, Colossians 2, 2? The battle clearly starts in the mind. That's where it starts. And setting our minds on things above a means striving to put heaven's priorities into daily practice. Setting our minds above means concentrating on the eternal rather than the temporal. Sin is exactly the opposite. You focus on the temporal and ignore the eternal. That, that's what it is. And it's that simple. But we have to work to do this. Now, let's go back for just a second to Psalm 32.4. What did it say? What did David say was placed on him? The heavy hand of the Lord God. The heavy hand of the Lord God. I want us just to think about that for a second before we finish. That and one other thing. This word that was translated in Psalm 32.4 was heavy. It's a verb. It's the Hebrew word chabad. Chabad. And it means to be heavy, to be weighty, to be grievous, to be hard, to be insensible. The Lord sometimes places his hand on us that way that it weighs heavy on us. Some of us could say, yes, that has happened to me before. When we step outside of the will of God, the Spirit of God can bring his influence to bear upon us as he convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And as a result, we may experience a sense of guilt, sometimes one that consumes us. Even depression can result as he puts his hand on us, the same way he had to put it on Jonah. Well, if God does that, what are his goals? He's not attempting to squash us under his weight of his heavy hand. No, he desires to bring us to a point of confession of sin. You see, sometimes there are some of us, no, all of us who, well, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. And I have confessed this and I'm trying not to allow this to happen. And then the Holy Spirit will say, what about that over there? Now, let's not talk about that. I'm, I want to talk about these right here. You know, I could stand up here and I could tell you, I don't have a problem with the sin of homosexuality. Not a problem. I have a wonderful wife. And I, I'm, I'm all heterosexual. But God doesn't want to talk to me about homosexuality. What about your temper in the car? <laughs> now you go off the bed. 
That never worked with him, saying that to him. He would say, you're right, Doug, and let's get to it. So we need to come to understand that's the first thing. The next thing is the clear turning point for David was when he said, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. No wonder David began the psalm the way he did. He points to the blessings that all people experience when their transgressions are forgiven and cleansed. That blessing or that blessed sense of relief can be yours today if you acknowledge your sin because we are fighting a battle and God can't use sinful people to do it any more than you want to drink out of a glass that has something in the bottom of it to disgust you. And I didn't say it. I've been warned about you know, referencing cockroaches, so I don't do it anymore. And I want you to know that. Now, there's one other thing I want to talk about when we finish. Some of us in here, we first have firsthand knowledge, pain of betrayal in a relationship. We know how much it hurts. We know that ache that doesn't go away and it seems to haunt us all the time and we can't seem to escape it. We know that. Now, God can help us through that, but we know it. There's also some of us in here who've been the causer of that pain. And yes, we sin. And it doesn't make you a different sinner than anybody else. But you, when you say spiritual adultery, does it really hurt God the way it hurts us? Now, I want you to think about that. See, I thought about that this week. You know, some would say, well, yeah, but God is God. He doesn't hurt. Well, yeah, Jesus did, but that was because he was a man at the time. He was human besides being God. Let me tell you, why does adultery hurt a human being? Because they love that other person and they have that sense of betrayal. Is there any wife in the world who loves her husband more than God loves her. No, there is not. God's love for us is deeper, it is wider, it is more wonderful than any love we can have for anyone else. And so it hurts Him so much more when we betray Him and become the spiritual adulterer by being friends with the world. And we need to understand that. We hurt him. And you know, that ought to be enough for us to say, I don't want to hurt him anymore. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend here together. And I thank you for talking to us about these difficult subjects and how we need to understand and respond to them. Father, help me not to hurt you. Help all of us to understand the pain we cause you when we become friends with the world and it means hostility towards you. Help us to understand the apostasy that is coming on the church, Father. And help us as we study the rest of it. We'll come to see what are evidences of this apostasy. And I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 